God with us. And we just praise his holy name for this time of year that we celebrate the birth of our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was being held in the arms of Mary and yet holding up the entire universe. May our hearts continue to marvel at his majesty. Today, we are going to continue to look at the 23rd division of Psalm. Last week, we looked at how the Lord is our shepherd. And the benefits that we have when we allow him to be our true treasure and lead us. And we talked about that other shepherd, who is Satan, the bad shepherd. And how he tempts us and how he wants us to allow other things to shepherd us. How he wants us to look to our significant other for leadership or for purpose and science and sports and success and sensuality and how when we do that when we allow anything other than Christ to shepherd us how we will not experience green pastures still waters and comfort in the midst of the valley and we talked about this great shepherd who laid down his life for us Today we're going to look at the last two verses of the 23rd Psalm. And we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and to encourage us and to paint another great picture, another great analogy or illustration in order that we can understand more the love of God. If you will, stand to your feet and turn to the 23rd Psalm. In this we know... The love of God, that he has truly sent his son for us. 23rd division of Psalm, looking at the 5th and the 6th verse. And I would like to thank our sound men who keep us running each week, amen, and who are who are doing just a, a wonderful job. Uh, with the sound. I, I really appreciate them and hope that you do as well. The 23rd division of Psalm, very familiar chapter, starting at the fifth verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runneth over or overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would illuminate this passage in our hearts. We pray, Father God, that you will continue to allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth. 
We thank you for the songs of Zion that has prepared our hearts to receive your word. And Father, we beg you to speak. We beg you, Father God, to speak through your word. I beg you, Lord, to hide me behind the cross to allow me, Father God, to be used by you. May we marvel, Father, the fact that you use broken people, insecure people, unable people to preach a holistic gospel, a gospel that ministers not just to us spiritually and emotionally, but that that heals our wounds physically. Speak to us, God. Satan, we rejoice in your face today as we know that God has prepared for us a table in your presence. And we feast off of what God has prepared us right now. In the name of Jesus, our great Savior and King. Amen. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. So good to see each and every one of you out to worship the one true sovereign Lord this morning. I believe it's safe to say that every culture and that every subculture has their own customs. Customs are long established practices that are considered or viewed as unwritten laws. Every culture has that. Unwritten laws, unwritten rules that they go by. Here in America, there are some general customs that we follow when we are entertaining special guests. When we invite someone special into our house, there is a certain preparation that we go through. Normally, our custom starts before they even arrive. As we begin to clean the area that we expect them to dwell in. We take things that were normally out in the open and on the floor, we stuff them into the closet. And then, when the doorbell rings, we open the door and we greet them with a smile. We invite them in. We lighten their load. If they have any luggage or, or bags, we, we take it from them. If it's the winter time or, or even the fall or spring and they have a jacket or a coat, we take it from them and we hang it up. We then invite them into our living space and we tell them to sit at at the most comfortable seat that is available, if they're special. (laughs) We give up our football couch, if they're special. And then we ask them, is there anything I can get you? We ask them what they like a a cold, iced beverage. And we tell them to make themselves themselves at home. Because we want our guests to feel safe. We want our guests to enjoy their time. We want them to know that we honor them, respect them, and love them. In this text, David is addressing an audience in a very clear 
and powerful way. He is poetically using the most common traditions and customs to communicate to them their relationship or his relationship with God. In verse 1 through 4, he talks to this people who are and a people who, who live in an agrarian society, whose society is, is, is built off of agriculture. He talks to them about how God is his shepherd. He uses a common term, a common illustration or picture in order to show how God relates to him and relates to them. But then he just, he just uses another magnificent example. He leaves the example of a shepherd. And in verse 5, he begins to talk about a, a very common custom to his listeners. He begins to talk about the importance of seeing God as our host. To Middle Easterns, this is huge. Because one thing that they care about most is taking care of their house guests. Hospitality is extremely important to them. If we were in Palestine, if we were in Israel and we were reading this, we would understand exactly what David is talking about. We would understand how he is relating God as a host to us. For we would have a certain custom that we would go by if a visitor came into our house. If we were living in Israel during that time and we had a special guest come over, we would greet them at the door. We would invite them into our home. And after inviting them into our home, we would ask them to, to take a seat and we would have our servant come and wash their feet. And after their feet was washed, we would then take some oil. Oil that had been transported probably from a very far place. Oil that had fine spices and a great fragrance in it. For most people in Israel, they prided themselves on having a special bottle of oil for special people. At that time when we saw this special guest and after his feet was washed, we would take this oil and we would rub our hands, rub it in our hands and we would approach this guest and put this oil all over their head. This oil was symbolic, a symbolic gesture of our hopes and our attempt to have them experience joy in our presence. This oil represented gladness. It represented acceptance. It, it represented a, 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 a unique way of telling them that we appreciate you and we want you to enjoy your stay. And after their feet was washed and after we smeared oil on them, we would then go and proceed and get a cup. And we would get our finest beverage. And we would fill it all the way to the top. So much so till it was at the very brim. And the person who would receive the cup would be careful 
Because it was literally overflowing. And we would drink. And this would be a sign to our special guests that we want them to know that anything that is mine in this house is yours for your visit. This will be a sign to them that we want them to know that their cup is going to overflow while they are here. That, 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 that the gifts that we have for them is not short or reserved. In the Middle East, they took hospitality seriously. They took these customs serious. So so David here in the 23rd Psalm in verse 5 says, you prepare a table before me. He shows God as this great host. He shows God as as the one who is taking his relationship with us very serious. He shows God as this great host who wants us to see ourselves as his friends and as his special guests. Oh, this text should should humble us. This text should help us to see that God cares so much about us, that he delights in us, that he wants us to find satisfaction and joy in him. And a book published... In the early 1800s, a book called Oriental Customs, a man by the name of Captain Wilson wrote about an experience he had when he was a guest of a great rich man over in India. And in his experience, he said that the gentlemen of the house poured upon my hands and arms a a delighted perfume. And he put a golden cup into my hands and he poured wine until it until it ran over, assuring me at the same time that it was a great pleasure to him to receive me and that I should find a rich supply of my needs in his house. God today through this text is communicating that as his children, as his special guests, that daily and since we have come into a, a unique relationship with him, that he is daily rolling out an abundance of blessings for us, that it is a great pleasure to him to receive us, and that as long as we look to him as our host, as long as we look to him as our shepherd, we have a rich supply. A rich supply. Look at verse 20, verse 5 in, in, in chapter 23. David says, you prepare, you prepare. Speaking of God as a host, God prepares. He says, listen, God, you prepare something for me. There is preparation. This word in Hebrew means to arrange beforehand. We come into a relationship with God and we are his special guests. And God prepares something for us before we arrive. God already has arranged and fixed things for us as his special friends. (laughs) He's already set some things in motion. He's already set you up 
Because to you, you are his friend. I marvel at the gospel of John and how Jesus or the author talks about how Jesus moves from a casual relationships with his disciples early on to a very intimate relationship towards the end of the book. In the beginning of the book, he's, John writes as Jesus is calling them servants. Towards the middle, he switches the language and calls them brothers. And by the end, he is calling them friends as well as brothers. Isn't that marvelous? We come into a relationship with God, and God not only just sees us as his, his servants, but he also sees us as his dearest friends. When we are allowing him to be the host of our lives, he prepares some things for us. And, and one of the things that he prepares for us is salvation, consecration. Before you were born, God prepared and God consecrated you as his special friends, his special Guess, isn't that what God told Jeremiah? In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, when he is telling Jeremiah his plans for him, he told Jeremiah, he says, before I formed you, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were knit together, before you were an embryo, I was intimate with you. You as well. God was intimate with you. He knew you before you were ever even conceived. What a great host. What a magnificent host that he would prepare some things for us, that he would consecrate us, that he would appoint us to be his royal priesthood, his chosen people. Not only did God prepare for us, Salvation. God also prepared for us good works. Good works. Meaning that if you are a believer, God preordained. He predestined you to accept his invitation to be a Christian, to follow Christ. But not only did he predestine you to accept his invitation, he also predestined you for good works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul tells us that we are his workmanship. Greek, poema. We are his masterpiece. We are his poem to the world. And he has done something. He says he has created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a special host we have. A host that has given us salvation. A host that has arranged good works in him. Has arranged good deeds. Has arranged love. Has arranged the ministry of helps. Has arranged the ministry of encouragement. Has arranged the, the ministry of teaching. Has arranged the ministry of love for us. He has already laid out our good works and ordained them to do it. But you know, as a host, God has also prepared something else for us. 
something that goes far beyond our wildest imagination. He has prepared a a beautiful future for those who allow him to become their host. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has is such a great host that he has not just prepared salvation. He has just not prepared good works for you, but he has also prepared a, a beautiful future for you. A future that Paul says that, that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. A future that has not entered into the heart of man. A future that Jesus talked about in John chapter 14, verse 2, when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. What a great host. What a great host. Unbelievable host. God has arranged some things for you. God has fixed some things for you. God has set some things in motion for you. God has received you into his realm by extending to you an invitation of intimacy, an invitation of friendship. No other host can do that. No other person can give you the benefits that God can give you. No other person can give you that personal intimacy. No other person can provide for you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. No other person can give you a a peace of mind that surpasses all understanding. No other person can give you the, the type of protection that you need. No other person is a host like God. Thou preparest, arranges, a table. Now, when I read this and was meditating on this, I looked up that word table. I began to think about that word table. And you know, I must admit, I was pretty shallow because I didn't think about it in a theological deep way. At the time, I was physically hungry. So I said, well, what's on the table? If you are preparing a table for me in the presence of my enemies, at least you can tell me what I'm going to (laughs) eat. Then I remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 51. He is shepherding a crowd, leading a crowd. He has just led them in green pastures and provided for them spiritually and physically. He had just fed a multitude with two fish and five loaves, becoming the shepherd in Psalm 23. And now they have searched for him and they are looking for him and they are wondering. They, they, they want him because they like his celebrity and they want to make him king. And Jesus begins to talk to them in some very stark terms. And he says in the 51 verse of John, the sixth chapter, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He says, I am, I am the living bread. What words? (laughs) I am the living bread. If I had bread that was alive, I would be a little nervous. But I am the living bread. And I came down 
from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live, live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Thought about those words. And I thought about David's words, how God is preparing, arranging a table. And I said, Lord, what's on this table? God has arranged, he has prepared a feast for his guests. And that feast is the very bread of life, is Christ himself. It's Christ. Christ is what's presented on a table. At this host home, at this great banquet, Christ is what is being offered. Christ is the very bread of life. Prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What is it saying? David is saying that the Lord has arranged for his special guests satisfaction in Christ, joy in Christ, even in the midst of enemies. He says, Lord, you have arranged a joy that the world does not know. <laughs> a joy that has not been given by the world and a joy that cannot be taken away from the Lord. He says, Lord, when I am allowing you to host me, when I become your special guest, I don't have to worry about my enemies because you will satisfy me. Enemies. <laughs> Interesting. Because as I said, enemies, some people, some people was tempted to put people in that category that shouldn't be in that category. Some people were tempted to put their spouse in that category. Your spouse is not your enemy. No, 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 no. <laughs> if you see your spouse as your enemy, you're in a whole lot of trouble. Whole lot of trouble. Some of us, we were tempted to put brothers and sisters in Christ in that category. That's right. He prepares for me. And the presence of sister or brother so-and-so. <laughs> a table for me. Your brother and sister in Christ is not your enemy. Your brother and your sister in Christ has been blood-bought by the very blood of Jesus. Your brother and sister in Christ is God's special host. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. It may have been for David, for he was a king, a military strategist, and he may have been focusing on how his enemies often was after his life, but how God had satisfied him and, and given him joy. You remember what he said in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, in your presence is the fullness of joy. He, even though enemies was encamped around him, he often talked about how God was satisfying him, how God was giving him what he need, refreshing him, giving him peace, but our fights. It's not against each other. It's against spiritual wickedness in high places. Our enemy 
has fangs, and his name is Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, the devil. He is our accuser, and God is saying that if when we allow him to host us, that he allows our minds and our hearts to be so fixated on Christ that what Satan is doing does not bother us. He honors us in the presence of, in the presence of Satan as Satan tries to accuse us, as Satan tries to condemn us, as Satan tries to remind us of yesterday and yesteryear. As he tries to steal our hope, God honors us and says, this is my beloved child. And whom I, and whom I well please. When our attention is set on the host, when our attention is set on the shepherd, we respond in such a, a magnificent way because we are just glad to be in the presence of our shepherd and of our host. As we look at this text, we must take mention of the fact that God's love, and if God is loving us, which we know he is, that even if our enemies are present, even if our enemies are lurking, that there is absolutely nothing that they can do to separate us from the host. David paints a magnificent picture here. In this verse, he even uses an imagery of a, of a great banquet, of a king inviting someone into a banquet that really this person probably isn't even supposed to be in. And at this very same banquet, there is a table of people who don't like this person, a table of people who probably are gossiping against them, who are probably using words against them, who probably would try to take them out if he could. And, and, and David is, is painting this picture of this host telling this person to come higher. Take a seat at the king's table. Let me fix a meal for you. And he's telling this person, I see your enemies. I am aware of your enemy. But know that as long as you are up here with me at this table, that your enemies cannot harm you. A lot of people spend too much time worried about people. Worried about Satan. If God is your host, you don't have to worry about the naysayers. If God is your host, you don't have to worry about what Satan is attempting to do. Don't fear what Satan might do. Praise God for what you know that God can do. Pairs a table for me in the presence of my enemy. I hope you've noticed that something is missing from this text. I recently noticed that something was missing. Something that caused tension, 
should cause tension in our thinking, something that should possibly disturb or bother us. There's a secret in this text, I think, something that David is implying and showing that we often miss. So we look through this text, there's two things that's absent. One is complaints. The second is good works. Throughout this psalm, the most beautiful psalm in the scripture, we don't find David complaining. He mentions some problems, dark valleys. He mentions some people, enemies, but he doesn't complain about them. What's missing in this text? What allows David to write this text so poetically, so beautifully, with such a refreshing spirit, such a joyful spirit that it is being regarded as the favorite psalm of just about every generation, what is missing in this text that allows him to do it? I'll tell you what it is. Self-entitlement. Self-entitlement. When David is talking about the Lord as his shepherd, when David is talking about the Lord as his host, he does not feel entitled to anything. David is not pointing to his good works. David is not pointing to his position as king. David is not saying, listen, the Lord is my shepherd and I've been a a great person and this is what I deserve and this is what he's going to give me. David instead has a picture of grace. This chapter is about the grace of God. Do any of us deserve to be a sheep in God's flock? I don't. I know I don't. I can't earn this type of leadership that I'm under. I can't afford the blessings that this host gives to me. David is able to write this song with such a peace, with such a a calm, because David is not feeling entitled to anything. He is seeing himself as a guest in God's courts, a guest that doesn't deserve the treatment that he's getting, a guest that doesn't deserve this plan that the Lord has arranged for him. A guest that doesn't deserve this this peace. I believe that we would be a lot happier. That we would be a great poem to the world if we lost our self-entitlement and reminded ourselves every day that we have already received more than we ever could earn, 
more than we ever could afford. We have already received eternal life. And everything that the Lord gives after that is just a bonus. I think the problem, the reason why the 23rd Psalm has not become a reality to me as much as it should be, and a reality probably to you as much as it should be, is because we look at the blessings of the shepherd and the blessings of the host as something that we deserve. something that we deserve. Remember in the book of Luke, around the 46th chapter, a Pharisee came up to Jesus, and his name was Simon. And he invited Jesus into his home. And Jesus came into his home and was hanging out with this Pharisee. And the Pharisee ignored the customs of the day, The Pharisee did not give Jesus a cup of water or a cup of wine that was overflowing. He did not give Jesus some anointed oil and let Jesus know that he appreciated him because the Pharisee felt entitled. The Pharisee felt that he had already or that that he was the one that was special. But there was a woman there that Luke calls a sinner. And this woman was so honored that Christ was in her presence that she took some expensive oil. She took an alabaster box, something that would have probably cost her a life savings, and she broke it. And she began to wash Jesus' feet with this expensive oil and with her hair because she understood that she really didn't even deserve to be in his presence, but that he was so gracious so full of the Spirit, so loving to have allowed her to even be in the same house, let alone wash his feet. Oh, joy and peace comes when we travel through the dark valleys, not focused on what's going wrong, but focused on who is right. Focus on who is in front of us. Focus on who is shepherding us. And that is Jesus. When we go through our dark valleys, God wants us to respond like David. God wants us to respond like David and say, you comfort me. You lead me. You protect me. But when we feel a sense of entitlement, we gripe and we complain. And we worry, and we doubt, and we talk about people because we have lost picture of the grace of God. Not just in dark valleys do we have to be careful, but even when we're in green pastures. When things are going right, there is a temptation for us to behave as if we are the one who led ourselves to green pastures. There is a temptation to wander from the shepherd and to be alone and to feel that we have accomplished this. When we're beside still waters, there's a temptation to not drink from those waters with thanksgiving, but to drink from those waters with an attitude of, This was coming to me. 
And when we are in the presence of our enemies, we have to remind ourselves that we are not only with the host, but that the host is the one who will pay vengeance for us. When we feel a sense of entitlement, when I feel a sense of entitlement, and when I'm in the presence of my enemies, I go after them to revenge my own name, to revenge my own glory, to revenge my own reputation. But David is full of the grace of God. He's just happy to be one of God's special guests. He doesn't want to embarrass God by lashing out at his enemy. So he reflects on God's grace on the table that God has set for him. And he focuses on the host rather than on those who are his enemies. Children of Israel was led to the wilderness. By God, he was their shepherd. And they got a sense of entitlement, didn't they? And they began to gripe and to complain about everything that they did not have. They began to complain about not having fish and not having salad. They didn't look at the fact that God had delivered them from making bricks without straw. They didn't look at the fact that God had promised them that he was getting ready to take them to a a new place, a new land that was full of milk and honey. They didn't look at the fact that God had already delivered them from great things, but instead they looked at what they didn't have. In our dark valleys, in our green pastures, when we're surrounded by our enemies, do we stop and praise God and thank God? for the grace that he has already given us. Do we believe that his grace is sufficient? Do we pray for those who despitefully use us and bless those who curse us? Last thing that this text created in my heart was the question, what's God's motive? What's God's motive? Why is God so good to his sheep? Why is God so good to his guests? Why does he lead me? Why does he allow me not to want? Why does he take me to green pastures and still waters? Why does he comfort me in the darkest valley? Why does he prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? Why? I'm a guest. What does he want from me? And in this text, David just shows one motive. And that motive is in verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Here's the motive. Here's the motive. (laughs) Here's why God hooks us up. Here's why he's so kind. Here's why he's so comforting. Here's why he blesses us as such. He does it for his namesake. (laughs) God has given salvation to the Gentiles for his namesake. God has delivered you from alcohol abuse for his namesake. God has taken a taste of marijuana and cocaine away from you for his namesake. God has.
has a blessed you in the midst of adversity, in the midst of haters, for his name's sake. To do anything else would be idolatry. For God to bless, for God to keep, for any other reason than for his name's sake would be for him to worship something other than himself. And he is the greatest and highest good that would be idolatry. Everything that he does, the grace that he gives, the job that you have, the family that you have, the money that you have, the salvation, which is the most important that you have, was given in order that he would be glorified, in order that people would know that he is the great host. That there is no other host like him. No other host like him. In college, fraternities and sororities, they, even some buddies of mine that were part of them, they used to throw parties. And the motive of their party, the reason that they went so out to make the party so great is because they knew that if their party didn't go well, that the other fraternity, the other group, the other sorority would look better than them. They knew that their name was on the line. So they went all out to make sure the party was jumping. Well, God has thrown a party for us. And we are his special guests. And he wants the world to know that the party is going on over here. The party is going on inside me. That that I've got some joy that the world don't have. That I've got some peace that the world don't have that I've got some comfort that the world don't have. Yes, he does. God throws some awesome parties, some parties that never stop. The midst of my trial, the midst of my trouble, I can rejoice because my host is with me. I can rejoice because he's the ultimate party thrower. I can rejoice because I've got the ultimate hookup. And you ought to rejoice going through a dark value. I dare you to rejoice. I dare you to put your eyes on the shepherd. I dare you to bless the name of the Lord. I dare you to magnify him. I dare you to glorify him. I dare you to praise him on credit. I dare you to rejoice right in Satan's face and say the Lord has prepared before me in the presence of my enemies. He's prepared a feast and the feast is called the bread of life. The feast is called the great I am. The feast is called Emmanuel, Noel, Jesus Christos, Jesus, 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 Jesus. My way out of no way, Jesus, my storm calmer, Jesus, my joy, Jesus, my peace. Jesus, my satisfaction. Jesus, my all. Jesus, he's all right, ain't he? No other, no other, no other name I know. (laughs) Nobody can do me like Jesus. Nobody can keep me like the Lord. Nobody, nobody. Nobody! Yes, he is! Jesus! When you're in trouble, that's all you gotta say? Jesus! The name above all names! 
Jesus. Jesus is our shepherd. Amen. 